0: One two one two yeah, I can see the little bars going oh, ring, right. as bars. I record it
1: um, let me know when you're good to go Stephen so darn close I'm just gonna I'm going to mute my phone.
0: I'm gonna say uh, tell my wife I'm doing a podcast starting a podcast
1: <clears throat> I'm in. Hey, everybody, we are back with a new episode of Working It Out. Uh, I'm so excited. We're, we're simultaneously doing uh, the podcast and the live tour. I'm doing my new show, The Old Man and the Pool. We're, we're, we've just recently announced uh, new shows in uh, Berkeley, California, as well as Los Angeles. Uh, there's more on the way. Our guest today needs no introduction. Uh, You might have seen The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. You might have seen The Colbert Report. Uh, Stephen is a fascinating person to me because he has this uh, deep improv background, which, of course, I'm so fascinated by, uh, at Second City in Chicago. Um, He worked for many years collaborating with Paul Danello and Amy Sedaris on Exit 57, as well as Strangers with Candy. He references paul and amy that's who that's who he's referencing most recently he was awarded an emmy for outstanding variety special live for the late show special stephen colbert's election night 2020 (laughs) and conan o'brien stormed on stage (laughs) to receive it with him for no reason and that is where the conversation begins today Congratulations to you and Conan O'Brien on your Emmy win. Thank you. It's a long time coming. <laughs> He's been very patient. <laughs> How did you, how'd you feel on stage when Conan entered the stage and you realized he was on the stage with you? I think he got on stage before I did,
0: <laughs> actually. So it felt, it felt good. It felt right. Yeah. Conan's the first guy I ever tried to work with in late night. I'm no kidding. Yeah. he, uh, He was just starting his show and I was at Second City and Robert Smigel, Yeah. who was his first exec, really liked me. He had seen me at at second city and said i'm conan i want you to meet him it didn't go well (laughs) (laughs) it was like it wasn't a disaster it was just that i don't think i said or did anything that conan found funny at all yeah yeah and i i i pitched i like sent like three packets wow yeah and nothing
1: no kidding
0: absolutely nothing and it's incredibly gratifying to be friends now
1: yeah sure yeah. There's, there's no more late night wars, right? It's like it's in no. you know in the 90s it's like there's all these wars, everyone hated each other and now you guys all seem to enjoy each other's company. Yeah, and it's not even like wars. It was just late night hard feelings. <laughs> yes. Anyway,
0: Conan was the king of that night. <laughs> yes. All any of us they clumped, they clumped all the late night people together. Like there was it was us and SNL and Conan's people And Oliver's people And all we did was Laugh at Conan all night Oh that's funny It was wonderful
1: Yeah I was in a gathering A social gathering With Conan And a bunch of comedians once And He broke everybody At the dinner I mean he's just so He's so off the wall Yeah Yeah He's Like
0: pound for pound Just sitting around He and Dana Carvey The two funniest people Oh no kidding Oh, Dana is devastatingly funny to, to hang out with. Oh, yeah. No,
1: everything I've seen of his, he
0: kills me. Yeah, but Conan is uh, just about every minute. I mean, he's the sort of person that you go to dinner with him, and it's not like he's hogging the conversation.
1: You just don't <laughs> want him to stop. You just don't want him to stop talking. You're re- I'm perfectly happy just to yeah. be quiet. I'm going to tell him that you said that he hogs the conversation. <laughs> I'm going to relay that over text. And then I'll just sort of see where it goes from there. Are you friends? Are you friends with Conan? I'm friendly with Conan. He came on this podcast. It's funny because Ira Glass, who's a a friend and collaborator, um, I asked him for notes on this podcast. I go, do you have any thoughts? He goes, when you had Conan on, (laughs) you were very uh, intimidated. And I go, I know. Because when I look up to people, I sound intimidated. What am I supposed to do? And I feel the same way about you and then I actually was thinking should I should I ask you are you ever intimidated by your guests on your show mm-hmm. I mean what what
0: it, I'm sure it's it's mostly musicians Oh really because if it's a comedian I just want to have fun with them Right you know it's such a vacation for me and even, and even if it's somebody who comes on old style which means they've got material mm-hmm. and you're setting them up for an answer. And you've been, giving, you've been given a warning as to when that bit starts to wind down, like p- p- perk up a little bit, <laughs> when they start mentioning uh, how their mother makes cutting boards now in her wood shop or whatever. Like That's when like you gotta be ready to go on to the next beat. And which, which this is not my favorite because that's not an interview. That's not a conversation, but I'm very grateful for it because, again, it's like I lay back. I don't have to do any work. I don't have to keep the balls in the air. Yeah. Like you might have to, say, a sports figure. But what I mostly like is somebody who'll just riff, just somebody you can, you can, you can just jump in and have fun with. Tig is really fun that way. Oh, yeah, Tig Notaro is wonderful. You don't, she, she has material, but it's not important that she get to it.
1: <laughs> yes. You're mostly,
0: you're mostly just fucking around. And the audience is not—it's not a hostile relationship to the audience, but it's somewhat immaterial that they're there. You're ha- you're hanging out and riffing the way you might just in a writer's room, which I adore. But imitated—I uh, mean, not imitated. Uh, it, what, what do you call it? Intimidated, um, intimated. Uh intimidated. Kind of musicians intimidate me. No kidding. Because I don't—I don't get starstruck at uh, actors because while I'm not really an actor anymore I kind of get what they do. Yeah. I get the idea. And politicians not really. There're very few that I really admire. Yeah. And that can be mild. They're like talking to a president is a, is a can be an intimidating thing. But and comedians again I just want to play, but musicians it's like magic. Yeah. How do they do what yeah, how they are do? They doing this? I mean, I can play like ADG, I can play Froggy One Corton with my, you know, for my kids on the guitar, but, <laughs> but how does, well, how does John Batiste, or how does a real musician, that's real magic. They reach right into your chest and they do something to your heart and they change the chemistry of your brain from a distance. And for whatever reason, I think it's that mystery that truly intimidates me about musicians. If I, if I truly love them.
1: It's funny you say magic because you produced Derek Delgadio and Frank Oz's show in and of itself, which is has components of magic in it. And Derek's a friend and, and Frank's a friend of mine as well. I love those guys. I love that show. I mean, mm-hmm. what drew you, because you don't present or produce a lot of other people's shows. What drew you to no. that show in particular?
0: Well, one of my producers, two of my producers, but the first one was a guy named Barry Julian. I don't know if you know Barry at all, but Barry is one of my co-execs and he used to be my head writer. And he started off as a magician
1: oh, and, he, and he knows
0: my, my feeling about magic is not hostile, but it's somewhat indifferent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't seek it. Sure. But, but same, I don't avoid I don't avoid it. Yeah, I'm sure. like, oh, that must have taken a lot of time to figure out how to do that. <laughs> that's my res- <laughs> that's my response to magic. It's like, wow, that was a lot of lonely nights. Yeah, yeah, sure. Like that was yeah. And in some way I kind of feel that way about like musicians. Like, wow, that was a lot of your teenage years on your bed learning to to, to do arpeggios. And I feel the same way about magicians. Like I really admire the amount of skill and the dedication and the control and the timing and all those things. I think Steve Martin in uh, Born Standing Up, Born Standing Up, which is right, is right up there on the shelf actually. Aww. Born Standing Up talks about the, the relationship with the timing of, of magic and comedy, how there's a relationship there. But anyway, so he said, go, it's not a magic show. <laughs> it's, he's a great magician. Like, he's truly like a magician's magician. Like, he can yes. figure out things nobody else can figure out. People come to him. He figured out a kind of shuffle that no one, like, there's sure. been six shuffles for 300 years. <laughs> now there's a seventh one. And he came yes. up like, he's he's a kind of guy who is an innovator. He's not just a master. And so I went to go see it, not knowing what in the world to expect. Except that the moment I walked in the room, the lobby, and there were those choices to make about how you identify yourself. There's a pegboard on the wall with thousands of choices of I am a...
1: A dreamer. Joker. I optimist. am a dreamer.
0: Exactly. I am an idiot, which was my choice. I am an
1: idiot. <laughs> wow. And,
0: and I sincerely chose that. Oh. And I, and I, and I knew from the, the moment I got there, oh, this is a sincere invitation to be part of the show in a way that I'm not entirely clear on yet. Wow. But I could feel the invitation. I immediately liked the... Um, the the open door quality of that and the mystery the instant mystery uh which was a theatrical mystery not a not a magical mystery and and then the show is just both technically dazzling as as a magic show and emotionally uh adventurous <sighs> what he's willing to talk about. Yeah. And that I love that it that the show, the real magic took place inside the mind and the heart of the person watching it. Yeah. Which I suppose like a great illusionist would say, well, that's where it's always happening. Yes. But, but it actually had to do with uh, an act of love. I think it's very hard to do a show that gives a gift of loving the audience or allowing the audience to see their own beauty in the work. And that's what it was about. It was about love and s- perceiving your own beauty in yourself by perceiving it in others and and seeing yourself as having a common humanity. And I didn't want the show to be over. And when it was over in such a satisfying way, I didn't want to applaud. I didn't <laughs> oh want gosh, anyone yes. else to applaud. I just <laughs> wanted the silence to continue because <laughs> I felt like all around my body there was this envelope. Yes. uh, uh One molecule of air thick all around my body that was perfectly still. Yeah, and I didn't want to. I didn't. When I moved my hands, something precious would be lost.
1: When, when you describe that that experience that he's giving to the audience, is that in some ways the experience you're trying to give to the, the audience through the television uh, on the late show? Well, that's a. This is going to be a
0: sort of a multi-part and telescopic answer, okay. which I'm going to find it. I'm going to find as I go along. Okay, because you're asking me, why do you do your show? Is what your question is, right? Why are any of us doing anything? Uh, I well, that's why I say, like, I, like it's it's a tough question to answer. Sure. It's like, is that why the thing that you saw him doing yeah, on stage yeah. is that why you do your show? Is that what you're up to? Well, Jesus, I don't know why I do my show. <laughs> I can tell you what I like about the show. You know, what do I why do I do the show? Is somebody offered me the job? In a way, it was not the plan on any level. I'd never pl- I'd never planned to have a talk show. Wow. I would never plan to be I, mean, I was an actor was the goal. Yeah. The whole point was to be an actor. And and I think actor because there it seemed like something you could go learn how to do and then do it. You know, it seemed like there was a path for all the crazy things. For all the crazy things that are show business, and all right? the, how all of them are completely rolling the bones with your future.
1: Yeah,
0: it's such a it's such a crazy kind of quixotic thing to want to be is of in course, show business. Yeah. Actor was like, "Oh, you audition and then you get the part, and then you do that, and then that part's over." It seemed secretly, I wanted to be a comedian, but what did that mean? Yeah, how does you how do you become so you're funny and then someone pays you? Yeah, but who and how <laughs> yes. and what are you funny about and <laughs> and, and, and what w- what
1: is the possible path
0: to becoming a comedian? Yeah, uh, and no one ever talks about it. No, like no, you there, know,
1: there is no path, by the way. Right, but there, yeah. you can you can
0: perceive that there might be a path to being an actor. There's yes. acting school. There isn't like comedian
1: school. No, there, and there's no auditions for being a comedian. There's auditions for being an actor.
0: Right. There's an industry built up around the people who want to be it, but that doesn't exist as much. I suppose the improv world has a little bit of that because it bridges you know acting and, and stand-up or acting in pure comedy. Yeah. And so I mean I wanted to be an actor, but I really I mean I, I studied acting, but I wanted to be a comedian, but couldn't even say that out loud until I started improvising. I was in Chicago and I, I saw real long form one suggestion, fully improvised, one-act play kind of improvisations yeah, yeah. In, the, in the mid-'80s when the Herald was really sort of taking off in Chicago, the Herald long-form improv, and m- immediately fell in love with it. So, okay, that's not answering your question, but this is why it's long I'm, and telescopic. I'm enthralled because <laughs>
1: these are all of my interests, by the way, because I'm an improviser and a stand-up comedian, so I'm fascinated by the yeah. merge of the two, which is what your talk show is in a way.
0: Yeah, though I don't think of myself as a stand-up because I think you have to earn that title and I never did. I never didn't do clubs, I didn't go on the road in that way. I I've never come up with like a tight 10. Like I I just don't <laughs> have I've never had to do the um the mechanics of that and find my own art within it. Sure. You know, I've never I've never actually it seemed very lonely to me. It didn't have any interest for me. I like being on stage with other people and and kind of working out the material together. Yeah. And, the, and and it's like an act of love and friendship with the other person on stage who, if everything, if all else fails, well, I still like you and you still like me. <laughs> even if the if the audience is getting up en masse and walking out.
1: That's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of why uh co- comedic group work is, is fun, even if it doesn't go well. Right. And sometimes the greatest joy is the failure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What I learned when I started to do improv is that a I had a I had a facility for a, like a, a comedic vulnerable reaction, mm-hmm. a, as opposed to like a quick mind, which I've been accused of as well. Though I don't think it's actually all that quick. I think I just have a, like a broad reference level, so I can I can pull things up very quickly. But actually, like. A quick response in a moment. I'm not that kind of a quick huh. comedic response in a moment. I don't think I'm that great. Okay. Um, and I think that the greatest thing you could be as an improviser is vulnerable. I think that's the, the greatest thing you can be. And that's where a real improvisational comedic moment comes up is my reaction to your want or, or my disappointment at your lack of fulfilling my want on stage. And I loved that. And that dovetailed with what I'd already learned about acting. And so I fell in love with improvisation. And while I did both straight theater and improv comedy for many years in Chicago, I eventually one night just said, fuck it. I really am only going to do comedy. I remember distinctly thinking, I, I'm just going to see how far I can ride this road. Yeah. And, and I have to really dedicate myself to it. And, and the night I decided that was the night that, uh, do you know Jenna Jolovitz at all? She's, uh, she does a lot of writing and she's a, a, a very funny comedic actress who does a lot of writing in Los Angeles. And Dave Rozowski, I don't know if you've ever spoken to him about improv. He teaches a lot of improv in LA and we were all on stage together in Chicago and Jenna goes out on stage because we're writing a new show, which means we're throwing in a lot of old material just to keep the pace of the show up while we're coming up and trying to replace, like, like one Lego at a time the new scenes that we're creating. But in the meantime, we still have to do a proper show. She goes out on stage to do an old blackout. I don't know who did it originally. Maybe, like, Dan Castellaneta or somebody like that at Second City. She goes out to do an old, old blackout called Wales, And basically... You go out and say, hello, wel- welcome to the mushroom pipe. You know, your bonsai twig tea will be coming around shortly. In the meantime, I want to do some songs for you. Right now, I'd like to do a song for the whales. <laughs> and then you, take, make, you make a big show of tuning your guitar for a while. And then right as you're about to hit the strings, you go, ooh, <laughs> Psh, tick, 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 And you, you, cl- you click and you whistle. <laughs> and it's it's not a great joke, but it never,
1: it's it never, yeah. 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 It never yeah. fails. Sure.
0: It's a blackout. And then blackout, yeah. It's a minute long, and it gives gives people backstage time to change their outfits. <laughs> yes. So she goes out on stage, and Dave and I are supposed to be the next scene to go on. We're improvising some scene. I can't remember what it was. She goes out, and she says, the whole setup, she goes, I'd like to do a song for you now. And then she—, she Tunes up her guitar and she starts doing her clicks and her whistles like a like a, a whale and is getting nothing. It's absolutely getting nothing, and we're looking at each other, thinking, <laughs> "What? What's wrong?" She, this never. It's not great, but it never fails.
1: Yeah.
0: And and then she goes, "Oh, I've, I forgot to mention, it's for whales." Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And she's just oh, been clicking great. and
0: whistling for thirty seconds oh my to gosh, nothing. That's so funny! And Dave and I looked at each other, threw our arms out, and hugged each other like a like like a like an A-frame little lean-to. And our our feet start to slide out away from each other, and we're still holding on to each other with tears running down <laughs> <on> our faces, <laughs> racked with laughter out loud, and we fall down still holding each other in a lover's embrace with our feet on stage right behind her. And then she starts laughing because she realizes why we're laughing at her. And the audience is still, it's complete silence. And the stage manager just slowly brings (laughs) the lights down. (laughs) And that is the actual second that I decided I will do this for the rest of my life. If I can, I will do this for the rest of my life because look at what this moment of failure was like and how filled with joy we are to be with each other in this moment of absolute crashing disaster it was wonderful and i thought so much
1: this what a healthy way to live it is such a healthy way to live i think that it's a great metaphor for all things which is which is we're all we're all to some degree with our wives and children and parents mm-hmm. we're all failing to some degree together mm-hmm. at all times and if you, right. you do laugh And the proper laugh about response that, is to
0: it, hug the person next to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, <laugh out> <laughs> and eventually things fade to black. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, this is to say, what do we most want to be? Yeah. Not alone. Yeah. And so, why am I on stage? Why do, I do my show? So I won't be alone. Yeah. And I won't feel alone. And for the audience, I want that feeling too. I want them to feel. Not alone. Yeah. And so Derek's show certainly is about seeing other people. Yeah. About seeing and being seen, which was one of the first things I learned as an improviser. See and be seen, hear and be heard, feel and be felt, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And and that see and be seen aspect of, of Derek's show is about the acknowledgement that you're not alone. And mostly, we get lo- alone by putting blinders on, not being willing to see each other, and and it's a self imposed blindness, and it and it's also it's associated with cynicism, yeah, that kind of blindness, and and so if there is a relationship between the work I do and what I most loved about what Derek was doing, it was a it uh, it penetrates loneliness,
1: yeah. It's funny because there is a inverse to what you're saying because famously. Your scene partners have not been um, happy to be your scene partners. Uh, like with, when you went on O'Reilly's show years ago, uh, when you did oh, the correspondence well, dinner, right? So that's different. <laughs> so you're coming to it with like a That's common- not my scene partner. Okay. <laughs> my scene partner
0: is the audience.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Well, on that show, the scene partner was the audience. Okay. Because we were playing a game together. Right. where they I was their instrument of chaos in a way <laughs> they they agreed
1: <laughs> for you to intellectualize this in this way is so enjoyable for me well that
0: well that the, there was this we learned something early on on that old show which was and I'm gonna give you an example that may not be the the, the best but this is one that first comes to mind is people would come on who would find some fault in the uh, politicization of uh, the Christian right, or, or Christianity in the form of the Christian right, and I would say, well, I mean, all the founding fathers were fundamentalist Christians, so why shouldn't it be that way? Now, that's a absolute lie.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: you know, a lot of them were animists. That's right. A lot of them had, they had they had very they had a very jaundiced eye of religion, mm-hmm. and but I would win through my bluster,
1: mm. which was
0: what my model did. My models would win through bluster. Right. And the audience knew it wasn't true, but they would cheer when I would win in that moment, even though it would be this very odd cheer combined with laughter where they knew I shouldn't win. And they didn't <laughs> want my idea to win, but they wanted my character to win against whoever this figure was, who they actually agreed with. So it it was an improv game. They were agreeing to the reality that I was establishing. And they wanted me to then impose that reality, which was an odd, distorted funhouse mirror of the people I was making fun of, which is what satire is, he said from the mountaintop with Moses. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and they wanted me to clang up against the world. They wanted me to take that mirror out into the street, you know, yeah. and to and to win yeah. in to win <laughs> with the weapons of with that weapon of bluster against the people who most wielded it. And so that's why the correspondence dinner or O'Reilly or testifying before Congress or whatever like that, all of that, all of that was about that. And, and for me, I also wanted to see what it was like to do this kind of stuff for real. Like if you did it for real, what would happen? Because again, going back to improvisation, and what that taught me is that uh, discovery is greater than invention. And that's why I like writing with somebody else, is that I can invent a script as I'm writing it. It's rarely discovery. But if I write a script with you, I might discover something about what you're saying that interests me. And my interest then raises something in you that you didn't know was there, which is a discovery for you. And there's this feedback loop of discovery. Yeah, And so... That's why I really wanted a super PAC. I really wanted to run for president. I, re- I I really wanted to go testify. I really wanted to see what really happens when you do it. What is the thing that's happening below the counter that nobody talks about? Right. Because you know that's oh we don't talk about the part. Let's just what's what's the part the audience sees? And I wanted the part that nobody saw to be what the audience sees. And 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 because my character was interested in it, it then became performative
1: even though it's not normally part of the performance. That's so fascinating, because, you know, I always think of that improv, learning improv in college, because Sharna Halpern and this this Chicago team, Frank Booth, came to my college to teach us improv when I was at Georgetown. And it was very formative for me. I was a freshman in college, and it and it changed my brain into thinking sort of yes and to everything, everything in my life, everything in relation to comedy or theater, Everything and it's and to this day it's how i write jokes so it's like i you know you have you come up with some kind of premise that's something that we all believe to be true and then there's a right turn and then there's embellishments on the right turn that i you know that are tags tags to the joke and improv in so many ways is is that same thing it's it's a scene that's sort of a status quo and then there's a right turn and then you go 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 into that right turn are you left-handed?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because no one says right turn. <laughs> oh, that's
1: so funny.
0: <laughs> oh, that was a real left turn. It's always like, wow, that was a real left turn <laughs> is the only way I've ever heard it said. <laughs> well, that was a real right turn. No, no, obviously, everything's a right turn. <laughs> that was a real left
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel so stupid. This is how I've been describing jokes to people for like 10 years. Um, and now I'm, for the first time, I, hey, Stephen Colbert calls me out you, and says, nobody says that. Well, I mean, it, maybe they do
0: because i'm right-handed, you know, and i'm, you know, dextro-centric, but yeah. maybe maybe people, you know, listening to this right now could could tweet on left this turn. to let us know, but i've only heard
1: left turns. Left like, turn. well, always okay. a left turn. I might have yeah. to change that. But that's why i think the relationship between stand-up and improv is actually very firm. People think of them as sort of a po- you know, when i was coming up in the late 90s early 2000s, there would be like the improv camp and the stand-up camp and they didn't really mingle. And I always thought that was so silly because they're actually sort of one and the same. They didn't mingle in Chicago. I mean in my in my day. Yeah, that's I mean, what I, that's that, what I that was like, heard.
0: But but I'm before you. I mean I'm I'm probably 10 years ahead of you. Uh, cuz I was cuz I started spring of 85. Spring of 85 was the first time I ever went to I saw Dell and Sharna at at Cross Currents under the Belmont L in Chicago and, and uh I was just there just as a you know, an audience member. I wasn't Studying, yeah. and I immediately thought I have to do this, and I don't know why.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that! I got to do this, and I don't know why. That's a great feeling, though. Yeah, it was.
0: It was almost like, um, you know, Richard Dr- Richard Dreyfus with the potatoes trying to sculpt the Devil's Tower in Close Encounters. I'm like, damn it! This is this immediately was a a a worm in my brain. And I started doing it constantly. And that that thing you were talking about is so true. When you start, I think if you're taught improv in a certain way about agreement and addition and like the yes and of it, you know, which is, it is both simplistic and also holistic at the same time. It is both like the the most facile reduction of what you need to do and also the hardest fucking thing to do. And that's why it has a holistic quality. And it gets into every aspect of your life. I said yes to everything. I mean, it got me in trouble. Like I would, I never said no to anything. And everything anyone ever said sounded like the initiation at the beginning of a scene because I would hear behind every sentence a whole other story I didn't know about. And then it, then it started getting down for me into, I'd hear it behind individual words. I realized, and it's true is what I discovered, is that behind every word, there's a story if you start to dig.
1: Oh, wow.
0: What does that, I have, I have a raft of etymological dictionaries on the bookshelf over to my right here because I got so obsessed. After I started improvising, I got so obsessed with etymology. But well, what's the story behind this one word? Or, or this one phrase, you know, the whole nine yards, whatever like that. Whatever that, fr- what does that mean? Yeah. You know, um, and it, 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 I mean, it changed the way I
1: thought about communicating at all. Did you, you said you were saying sort of saying yes to everything, you know, <laughs> and to good ends and bad ends. In the 90s, when you were coming up in Chicago, did you ever say yes to something that you really regretted?
0: No, I mean, mostly like overextended or, I mean, I mean like, yes, I will go to this next party with you. Like, yes, I will. <laughs> or, yeah. uh, but, but never, I mean, it's not like I, I said yes to projects, Bec- I, but I, but I was often working in three at once because I didn't know what would catch fire. And, and I was like, oh, I'll do, I'll, I'll, I always had, I had three jobs until I had the Colbert Poor. Oh, wow. I was always working three jobs. Because I didn't know what where even when I was at the daily show, I only worked three days a week at the daily show
1: oh wow on mondays
0: on Mondays and Fridays, I had off so I could do other jobs.
1: oh my gosh, so what were you doing like voice work or acting
0: uh yeah, uh usually a project with Paul and Amy, oh wow, you know, shooting a film or writing a book or uh yeah, doing other little side day projects or you know trying to, working on a pilot, something like that, always doing something else. When
1: you're working with, like, Paul and Amy, who you worked with for a long time. About what, 17 years. Yeah. What's your, because you did Exit 57 with them. Yeah, uh, Strangers with Candy. Strangers with Candy with
0: them. Yeah, and then we were also, we, we, we were all hired on the same day at Second City. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. wild. What, Toured okay, so and with then that, did with the, that and group,
1: what's your, what's your rap? What's the thing that people give you a hard time about?
0: Oh, I mean,
1: what did they, they make started, fun of you about? Oh, how
0: seriously I took it. <laughs> really? Is that I, I would never break on stage. I would never break. I would never fuck around. I would never deviate from scripted material, and and I would get really mad at them when they would. <laughs> <laughs> and and we'd be like, you know, we'd be like doing a show at Northwestern Colorado Community College in Rangeley, Colorado. Yeah, and. Nobody out there knows how this scene's supposed to go.
1: <laughs> I mean, nobody in Chicago,
0: nobody in Chicago knew how the scene was supposed to go. But in my head, I'm like, no, this, this is the material. This is the written material. I'm a trained actor. Yes. And this is the material. And they, we were not friends when it started off. We were oh. not friends because I, they thought I had a stick up my ass and, and they were right. And, and I thought, Paul, certainly, I mean Amy, I just immediately saw such a such an extraordinary talent that I probably wouldn't meet again in my life. Oh, wow. there was something about, there was something about her that I immediately thought, oh, that's really special, and all I want to do is is watch her on stage and and I was so lucky to you know be somebody who wrote for her for years. that's what Paul and I mostly did,
1: yeah um, I mean, we wrote movie. for ourselves
0: too, but yeah. Yeah,
1: she was the main character.
0: Oh yeah, it was to serve like, what can we do with her, with Amy and her character? And it was such a joy and such a privilege to do. Um, but Paul, I thought, was sort of like uh, a troglodyte, knuckle dragger, um, barely literate, um, <laughs> and which he kind of cultivated. <laughs> like, but it was it was purely cultivated. Like he yeah. still kind of does it, but it's not really. You know, his dad is. You know, was the head of the clinical psychology department at DePaul University, yeah. and and I caught him one day reading essays by Bertrand Russell, and I'm like, aha, you <laughs> you cultivate you cultivate this Chicago street Doc Martin leather jacket persona, but that's not really you, yeah. And and after that, one night they broke me on stage. We were again somewhere out in the country, you know, in a small town which we loved. I just, I, you know, there are very few places we went to over the years, you know, touring for years together. We, we didn't find something we just really loved about every little town we were in. So we're in this little town and I'm supposed to go over to Amy and try to pick her up, I think, in the scene. That's how this scene starts. And, and I tap her on the shoulder and she turns around and she's put in icky teeth. She's putting giant, like, brown, icky teeth in. And I burst out laughing. And I was so mad at myself that after the show was over, I went and (laughs) locked myself in the bathroom. (laughs) And and they stood outside the bathroom going, you gonna cry? Like, basically mocking me and beating on the door and I something broke in me, and I went. They're totally right. What am I doing? Oh my like gosh. everyone, the audience liked it, and they had a good time. And I'm I'm 24. Why aren't I enjoying myself more? And I I broke, and I walked out of that bathroom a totally different guy. And and we basically, I mean, we spent almost every day with each other for the next 15 years. Wow. Like there, it was rarely a day went by when I didn't at least. Talk with them on the phone.
1: There's an interview where you talked about having anxiety in that period of your life because you didn't know in your 20s how the hell you were going to pull off having a comedy career, which is such an outrageous idea. It doesn't have a a clear path. Yeah. And
0: and I was it wasn't so much the comedy career. It was having a comedy career, but also thinking. But I also want that sort of mid-century American man normative like The house and the car and the wife and the 2.3. Some part of me really wanted, uh, I mean, I got it, but some part of me really wanted that. And that was the conflict between those like, I am absolutely rolling the bones on a high wire over here. And over here is this supposedly normative life that means so much to me. And I had a nervous breakdown. The the tension between those
1: things was more than my brain could handle. What do you think... W- is what helped you get through that? And do you ever do you ever experience it still? Do you ever have any anxiety anymore? Oh yeah, yeah, I have a lot, but not that. That was truly
0: I wouldn't wish that feeling on Tucker Carlson. Like it was, <laughs> it was awful. I yeah. really like, truly indescribably. I don't know if you've ever had a full blown like panic attack, but it went on for months. And, and it, and it, it started the moment I woke up (sighs) and didn't end until I went to bed at night. And it was like, my skin was on fire. I remember one day short, we'd only been married for a few weeks, actually. Poor girl. We'd only been married for a few weeks. And I'd never exhibited anything like this before. And we lived in a fairly large apartment in Chicago, luckily. And there was a floating couch, meaning it wasn't against the wall. She came home and I was, I had my hands in my pockets and I was walking in circles around the couch yeah. And she said, How is your day? And I said, You're looking at it. Cause I had just walked in tight circles around oh the couch gosh. for about eight hours. Oh my gosh. Man. And that's and that. that kept my brain from reaching some psychological tipping point if I could just keep moving forward. And it came about because I said no to something. Like you said, like when did getting saying yes get you into trouble? Yeah. I really got into trouble the first time I said no. I was offered a part at Steppenwolf. Uh, The Looking Glass was doing their first show at Steppenwolf, and they offered me a really great part in it. But they weren't sure if they could pay me. Mm. It would all depend upon how the box office went. And even if they did, it would be like an honorarium at the end of the run. Yeah. And that's how they lived. And I said, I'm married. I've made a promise I won't work for free anymore. I'm not going to do it. So I said no. And it's everything I wanted to do. And I said, no. And I felt like, okay, your brain just betrayed your heart. And this is an irrecoverable uh, choice. And you will never, ever be confident in another decision again for the rest of your life. Because this was clearly the artistic choice. But you made a practical choice. And how can you be an artist? And it's all over. And now you've really thrown your life away because you're 30. 30. And it's too late to start doing anything else. Wow. And and that went on for months. That feeling went on for months. Absolutely paralyzed. And again, poor girl who just married me.
1: <laughs> Even just now, you describing your anxiety attack, it convinced me it was true. And I was like,
0: it is a big mistake. So here am I. I'm a newlywed and I... I, I, but I think it's because it, I didn't say yes. I said no. Yes, yes. And and so that's when I really got in trouble is saying no as much oh as saying yes gosh. is dangerous. Yes. I guess saying yes seems dangerous, but it's really saying no that's dangerous. Because yeah. open doors can always be walked through and closed doors are closed sometimes forever. And so I, here I am a newlywed and I wasn't even sleeping with my wife every yeah. night because I'd get up so much that I'd slept in a different room because wow. I didn't want to wake her up. And one morning I woke up in the futon in the guest room. I woke up in the futon in the guest room and it was over. And my skin wasn't on fire. And I searched, I I probed, like the way you probe around with your tongue in your mouth to find the cavity, like, is it still hurt? I probed around with my tongue in my mind, you might say, and it was gone. And I went, what happened? What's different? And strange to say, it hadn't occurred to me immediately, but- it took me a second to realize, oh, today's the first day that we're going to re- into a rehearsal to write the new show. Yeah. And, you know, rehearsal at Second City is weird because they call it process now. But in our days, it was just rehearsal, meaning you're going to start generating material that then you'll craft into, like, tight scenes, which will start to replace the old material. And I re- re- immediately realized the thing that had saved me was I got to create something today. Yeah. And then, then that also scared me because I thought, oh, now I can never stop. Mm. Is that my fear was that I'd chosen the wrong thing for my life. Yeah. But, and that terrified me. But then I realized I'd chosen exactly the right thing, but the exactly right thing was still just as unlikely as ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you know what I mean. You've convinced me again. You've convinced me your anxiety is justified again. Yeah, but but and then my adult—not
0: that I wasn't an adult then, but not as an adult as I am now. But my my mature anxiety is um, way down with the coelacanths. It's yeah. it's it's way down in the Marianas Trench. Yeah, you know, I, I I actually have to. It takes a long time to crank one of those up and look at it and go, "What is this about?" Because things go pretty well for me now. So, what is it? What is it that's actually still um, gnawing right. at the root? And it's, and, it's, and it's really rooted things. But anyway, those were, those, were, those were some, I think that's the anxiety that you've probably heard about before yeah. from my young life. Are is, all,
1: everyone on your show give answers this long? I think these are great answers. These are Hall of Fame answers. Okay. Okay. Well, that's not these are all answers. I don't know how to
0: answer these questions any quicker because <laughs> you're asking things like anxiety. What? <laughs> why do you do what you do? Why do ba- why do bad things happen to good people? Oh, Keep God. it snappy. Keep it uh-huh. snappy. What was before God?
1: This is the thing we do called the slow round. Where uh, a lot of it's based on memories. So, like, do you have a—you grew up in South Carolina, right?
0: Yeah, I was born in Washington, D.C., but I really only remember South Carolina because I moved there when I was four.
1: Do you have a smell from childhood that was really good or really bad that still sticks with you?
0: Yeah, I have—yeah, um, the, the smell of uh, low tide. Oh, Because wow. I grew up in the low country, and low tide—I mean, to a lot of people, smells bad. Yes, because it's it's decay is what you're smelling. You're smelling right. the decay that's left there, sea and life it's slowly, carcasses, like, right? Sea life slowly turning into pluff mud, and pluff yeah. mud is this mud that is a silt that's so fine that it, you put your hand in it, and it feels like pudding. Like there's individual grains in there, but it's so uh, well dispersed, and it's and it's like a, it's like you know. Um, why Velveeta melts so well is because it's <laughs> about 75% water. <laughs> I and did basically, not know that. yeah, there's binders in there. They basically, to make Velveeta cheap, they put as much water as they possibly can in there and it still holds a shape at room temperature. And that's why it, it melts instantly. And the same thing as pluff muds like that. It it it's almost all water, yeah. but it looks like mud because it's got this, I, it's probably just like Fish bodies holding it together. Oh and God. that's that smell is really terrible to some people. And I love it. I love that smell. So much is and, held together from fish bodies. Mm-hmm. So much depends. Uh that's so that's a good and bad smell. Yes. You know, and now and this it's a it's a salty and uh whew, it's it's almost like too much umami smell,
1: <laughs> you know. It's it's funky, but I love it. Too Much Umami Makes the Baby Go Blind.
0: I was a member.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know. was a member of I know. Too Much Light. <laughs> I know. For one day. Oh, were you one really? Day. Just one day? One day. You were in Too, uh, the too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind is a, is a classic Chicago theater show where they perform a hundred different mini plays, basically. 30 plays
0: in 60 minutes. Yeah. It was 30 plays in 60 minutes, and then a certain number of the plays between two and 12 would switch out every week.
1: How come they, there were only one day? Um,
0: I had worked at the Second City for a few years in the touring company, I guess like two, two and a half years or something like that. And they weren't using me to understudy because it's a rep system there. Where basically you tour, you learn tons of material over the last, now it'd be 60 years, but in the time it was 30 years. Tons of material over the previous 30 years. So you basically learn a form and then, when you're in a resident company, you make the form your own, and mm. people bend and break it, and or people just do. We kind of wanted to be this 1959 cast, so Paul and I wore sharkskin suits and short haircuts, <laughs> and you know, Amy kind of looked like Barbara Harris, and you know, it was she wore like a a line dresses and stuff like that, and but um, what was the question? You were in it for one day. Oh, so I had toured for a couple years and. They weren't using me as an understudy. Mm. So I wasn't, I wasn't, that's basically how you know you're being considered to go into a resident company at Second City. And they would never understudy me. Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, Paul and Amy both got placed in resident companies and my two buddies were gone. And it's not like there aren't other talented people there. I just thought, I guess they're never going to use me. Yeah. And so I went into Joyce Sloan, the uh, maven there, the the doyen of Second City. And uh, I said, hey, uh, I've had a great time. But sometimes people stay here too long and they get bitter. And I still really like it here. And so I'm going to go because y'all don't seem to be using me. And she said, don't threaten me. Oh,
1: my gosh. (laughs) I don't
0: respond well (laughs) to threats. And I said, I'm not. I promise you I'm not. This is all just gratitude. (laughs) Because threats won't work. I'm like, it's, I just... I, I'm just gonna go do straight theater, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's been great, I've learned so much, I gotta go. And uh, she said, if you leave, that's it. I'm like, I'm, I understand, this is a tough decision. So I left and I called up um, Ann Halliday, who was a old friend of mine. We'd actually dated in college and she was a member of Too, Lo- Too Much Light. And I said, hey, do you guys ever take samples like from outside? Because I've, I've started writing short stories. And would you, some of them might work for you guys. And I just want to do something else. And she goes, sure, come on up. So I, I went up, I met them. I met everybody there. I I'd seen the show many times, I loved it. I thought, I thought it had just the most wonderful, really beautiful, creative and anarchic spirit. I just loved everything about it. I loved their relationship to the audience. I love that when they said, when we sell out, we order out. Because if you would go and they sold out, they would order one pizza that got split among all 70 (laughs) members of the audience. It would come in 70 slices. And I love, there was something about that that was just absolutely fucking right to me. And so I read them some of my short stories, which were literally like a page long. And they said, okay, we'll do a couple of these. And then they had a little meeting and they said, would you like to join? I said, yes, I would. And they said, you're in. And I started they said, here, learn these plays. And they gave me what they were doing. And the next day, Joyce called me and said, you're gonna go in for Corel or whatever, because oh Corel was about a year ahead of me. And so I called those guys up and I said, hey, um, I've worked for like three years for this moment. And I didn't think it was gonna happen, but they said, yes, I hate to say it, but I gotta
1: take it. Wow. And and they said, that's fine, we understand. So that was why I was a member for one day. Um- do you have a memory from childhood on a loop that sticks with you? And it's not a story, but it's just something that, that goes around in your head sometimes.
0: I mean, more than there is time to possibly describe. Sure. I feel like my head is mostly occupied with just um, little, um, I guess today the kids would say little TikToks from my childhood. Yeah. That don't actually have a story. It's just an event. like. Uh, you think of grades. I got hit by a car. I got hit by a car. No kidding. Uh, and all the time, I picture the car about to hit me. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Jesus! And it's not a frightening memory because th- the impact I have no memory of. I just have a memory of the car because I, it got the memory of the impact got knocked out of my head. I don't remember. I don't remember anything for a long time after I got hit, and so I remember that a gold LTD with a textured like roof, like one of those leatherette kind of texture roofs and the guy behind the steering wheel was a a man with a short crew cut
1: blonde hair. That's what I remember. Wow. Do you remember a a point in your childhood or teenage years where you were an inauthentic version of yourself where you sort of cringe thinking about?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, um, fell in with a popular crowd at one point
1: <laughs> <laughs> you fell in with a I, popular crowd
0: i did i fell in with a popular crowd because i was known to be unpopular <laughs> and one of them <laughs> a, and and one of them um one day and the thing is i fell in with a, i fell in i was in i was in an unpopular crowd i was so outside of the um I was so outside of the social circle of my high school, not even high school, like all from sixth grade on, uh, that I wasn't even like recognized as one of the planets in the solar system (laughs) of my high school. I was out in the, you know, the metaphor I've used before on this is I was out in the Oort cloud where comets might come from, we're not sure. But I had smoked a little pot. Yeah, I had smoked a little weed. And uh, somebody who was very much at the heart of the solar system, for whatever reason, maybe because he was high, said called me up and said, "Hey, I want to know what it'd be like to get high with a nerd."
1: Oh my god, no!
0: <laughs> yeah, and I said, "Okay, okay." Oh my gosh! And uh, <laughs> I, and and it turned out to be a, a positive experience for him. <laughs> 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 and and i became uh and like 6 months later i would like show up to a party i remember one of the jocks at the school turned around at a party and said all right steven's here now this is a party and i went what has happened in my life like i became because i i became like i i made jokes you know what i mean like yeah. i was the i was class clown yeah. and i got in there i got i got there Because one popular guy wanted to see what it was like when I was high. And I made him laugh a lot. And then that, and then, and I, I mean, I ditched my unpopular friends. Not actively like, I don't want to be with you, but I, but I ditched them to the point where I remember one of them once came to my house and said, how'd you do it? Like, what's the secret? Right. And I said, like, well, just come out with us. Like, uh, just come out with us and let's, people will like you. Just come hang out. Right, and it's like, no, I need you to give me the, like the the a squared plus b squared equals c squared about this. <laughs> I need I need you to give me the AP lit, you know, a sentence diagram yeah. of how you did it." And I'm like, "I don't know, yeah, I don't really know." And uh, I, I I did not consider my friend's feelings uh, to the degree that now I perceive of as. Um, callous and yeah. self-centered. And uh I have a fair amount of shame associated with it. Yeah. It was 40 years ago, but no, I still I still I, I st- I'm still I
1: think it's important that you feel some still, shame over I that. I still I
0: still I still feel some shame <laughs> over that. Um I'm still friends I'm still friends with the the guys unpopular I, friends from yes. South Carolina. Okay. And I'm not I mean you're not friends with and, the popular kids. Uh, well, I don't have an active break with them, you know. Though I don't want to ask them who they voted for, I don't have an active break with them. But it just it it's not as it, it is it has not um, it has not been as nutritious as a relationship
1: as one would want in your later life. Speaking of which, my brother Joe uh, wanted to chime in at some point that he 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 would request you um, run for uh, Senate in South Carolina at some point at your leisure. Okay, I hate to disappoint your brother, <laughs> but no fucking way. <laughs> I had a feeling it might be something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's bad enough that people mistake me for the news. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Let no, alone I know. For a
0: politician. Yeah. Tell your brother I'm deeply insulted. <laughs>
1: What's the strangest neighbor you have growing up or family friend who's sort of memorably unique? Well,
0: there's a, fair, there's a fair competition growing up on Willow Lake Road in James Island, South Carolina. Okay, here's weird. So Willow Lake, Small Lake, up the street from us, there was a family from Shreveport, Louisiana. And, you know, South Carolina is Southern. As my father used to say, all roads lead North from South <laughs> Carolina. <laughs> yes. But I'd never met anybody from Shreveport, Louisiana. That's <laughs> real Southern. Yeah. And this family who were called the the Straums, and, uh, and however you said their name, they would say Straums. And he would say Strom? And you're like, Straum. And you're like, I'm sorry, are you saying, are you saying are you saying strong? Like a strong man? And they would go, Strom. And you're like, is it Straum? Like oh the gosh. German name, Strom? And they go, Straum. And so never, no idea to this day exactly what the name was. But they had three girls, two boys and three girls. And the three girls in the middle were named Stormy, Misty, and Dusty. And they were born on the same day, different years and and then the oldest boy was named the youngest boy was named Percy and the oldest boy was named Gator and i can feel my accent coming back just talking about this family <laughs> Gator and and Gator taught me how to throw a knife oh my gosh <laughs> and so i'm i'm okay with throwing knives i can i can uh, i can from a fair uh, from a fair distance i can sink a knife into a tree or wow. a whatever a target or something like that i'm pretty i'm i'm pretty good at it I was we we went to Russia a couple of years ago, and I met with some billionaire who had a dungeon like martial arts <laughs> lab, and he was like, "Here, throw these knives. Can you throw these knives?" And I'm sinking knives into the board. He's like, "Ah, eh, not bad." I'm like, "Thank you, Gator. You taught me when I was like eight, and I've ta- and I taught my kids too. I got each of the kids. I bought them. Um, my daughter wasn't interested. I offered. I offered, but my sons were really interested, so I bought them each like really kind of Cheap knives yeah. from a hardware store, and I engraved their names with a drummel into the handles. And I go, now I want you to keep this in your bedside table. Oh my gosh! And if an intruder comes in, I'm going to teach you how to protect the family by catching them right in the sternum as they're oh coming my up the steps. <laughs> And they still have them. I mean, they're they're all gone now, but in their bedside tables, those knives are still up there. So don't come into my house, fucker. Oh,
1: no, I get it. I get it. Because I've
0: got one in my bedside table. Do you think I didn't get one for dad? (laughs) Mine (laughs) just says dad in the
1: handle. (laughs) That reminds me of a bit I wrote a few years ago, which is I was in, I want to say it was in Georgia once at an airport. And this woman, I was at a rental car agency in a garage, and this woman from about 30 feet away goes, she goes this is, and this is how i heard it i don't know what she said but she goes she has a very thick accent she goes pip 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 the hat and the <laughs> only word that i understood was the word hat and i and i and i and i go uh what <laughs> and she goes pip 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 hat. and i was like oh no because you know you can't ask twice right and and uh, and I was I'm looking for context clues, and I'm wearing a baseball cap. And I go, yeah, this is some kind of hat. And she goes, no, dip, dip, and dip, dip, and dip dip, 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 a hat. And then I thought, I guess I will never know this person. Uh, there are just our, there are there some accents in this country. It's like your Strom story. I just I can't I can't suss it out.
0: There was a a commercial. When I was growing up in South Carolina, in Charleston, uh, for a store that still exists, it used to be called Gerald's Recaps. You know, like a retreaded tire. Yeah. Gerald's Recaps, and now it's ter- now it's Gerald's Tires and Brakes, but it's still the same thing. They have this international orange building where you'd go in and get your recaps done, and it was always a, it was always a, the ad was always um, a rotating tire. And the inside of it was clearly green screen because they would, as the tire would come around, another testimonial face would appear in the tire to talk about how great the service was at Gerald's. And there was, uh, there, was <laughs> there was this guy, and I'll never, for the, my, this might be what I say on my deathbed. My grandchildren would say, why did grandpa say that? <laughs> and this is what his testimony, his testimony was this. I find I get better mileage with the ones that are on the ones that are put it on there. <laughs> <laughs> and you know exactly what he means, right? I find I got better mileage with the ones that it owned than the ones that are put it on there.
1: I can't believe. it. And that. I'm
0: sure. I'm sure it means the retreads actually give him better mileage than the car, the the stock tires that came yeah. when I bought it from the dealership. And if you break it down slowly, he's going. I find I get better mileage with the ones that it owned than the ones that put it on there. Oof. And. And that's when I really, when I really need to like plug in to an authentic South Carolina, not Charleston, which is a different thing, but an authentic South Carolina accent. That's what I got to say. I'll say that backstage that's, myself.
1: That's beautiful. That's See, my hook. I don't have. I don't usually ask this as a slow round question, but because I look up to you comedically, but also personally, you're a father and you've raised kids that are grown now. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're like my my
0: youngest is is going to turn twenty soon.
1: My daughter's 6. What's the best advice you would give about uh, raising a child? The best advice
0: that I ever got was from Maurice Sendak. I had the opportunity to interview him out on his farm. Wow. And I asked him, "What do you I'm a he didn't have children, but he wrote He wrote books that people perceived as being for children, though he didn't. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. No, he never, he goes, I don't write for children. I write books. Somebody said, this must be for a child. I just write books. But we talked about children and what children need, like how to be a good parent. You know, the things, the thing that he, in some ways, maybe he didn't get. Yeah. And, and I asked his advice, same kind of advice. And he said, love them. Yeah. Love them completely. Yeah. And now what does that mean is up to everybody. But I actually think it's like yes and. It is so simplistic and yet so holistic at the same time that if you can't find the advice in the sentence yes and, and you can't find the, the, the advice in the sentence love them completely, yeah. then I've already failed as a parent if I can't find it within the confines of that sentence. That's, that's profound. I'm a very profound person, Mike Birbiglia.
1: I You're saying it in jest, even. But I'm, I'm not gonna... joking. I'm not. Am I smiling? <laughs> am I so much out. as cracking a fucking smile right now, Birbiglia? Oh, My God, this has turned so hostile. <laughs> <laughs> one really... of my
0: favorite. One of my favorite jokes. I did it for years. I don't do it anymore, but I would do it every time someone would say, "Oh, that was nice." Like say, like you know, yeah. that say that that was nice. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, I'm a nice fucking person. <laughs> I like that. You're acting like you're fucking surprised that I did something nice. You know what? Fuck you. Oh, Fuck nice. you for saying I'm that was nice of me. Oh, I, yeah, you seem like a human being. I am a fucking human being. <laughs> I love that. And, well, I'm glad you do because yeah. a lot of people don't.
1: Yeah, I enjoy that. <laughs>
0: that. That joke went right by a lot of people.
1: Well, I the, the material that I was gonna run by you today is um is have ha does have to do with parenting. Um I took my daughter recently for a sleepover for the first time, and we picked her up, and I drove with my wife Jen to get her, and and she goes, Mom, and she hugs my wife. And then the other mom goes, What about dad? Like she had to be prompted on it. And, and she goes, And she literally didn't even hug me. She goes, let me get my bag. (laughs) Like somehow me being there made me think of her bag. But I think sometimes that's what dads are. They're a reminder that you forgot your bag. I want to be like, hey, by the way, you know who's driving the car? Dad's driving the car. You know who's in traffic for 45 minutes? That was dad. You know who didn't drive the car? The bag. (laughs) And your mom, but that's for another time. But, so that's one. Okay. And then I have, uh, no matter what you do, no matter <laughs> no matter what you do in, as a parent, your children will eventually reject you. One day I took my daughter to horseback riding class, and it was like watching her grow up right in front of my eyes, and then mount a horse, and then trot away, leaving me in the dust on a horse that I paid for. And that's the best case scenario. She could have trampled me to death with the horse, and I'd have to say, thank you, Una, for trampling me with this horse. And my dying words would be, You're doing a great job. <laughs> anyway, that's what I think parenting is. <laughs> so that's joke number two. I like t- I like two more than you one. Like two more than one. Okay. Am I supposed to express it? No, opinion? yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And then I'll tell you joke number three. Okay. And then we can I'll break them apart for a second. And then the and then, and then this is and I'm sure you experience this to some degree with kids and danger and all this stuff is like my worry about sending my daughter to camp summer camp is that when I went to my first sleepaway camp uh, as a kid we didn't tell my parents about any of the dangerous stuff that occurred like we got to pick five activities one of mine was riflery. and my my parents didn't even know that was one of the things I was a fidgety eleven year old who always dropped the bowl of orange slices on the way to soccer practice. Clearly, what I needed to clean up my act was a firearm. Another activity I chose was horseback riding. And when I was there, one of the kids got bucked off the horse and died. And they didn't have us stop riding the horses. And I was on the horse thinking maybe I should stick to something safe like rifles. Another activity I chose was drama. And one day there was a police cruiser showed up at camp took one of my drama counselors away who threatened one of the other counselors in a walk-in freezer with a knife. That's a little dramatic if you ask me. A little over the top, I have a few notes. We got home from camp that week. My mom says, how's camp? We said it was great. And she never heard a word about any of those things. <laughs> and and, and I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm that mom taking my daughter to camp And I'm like, how was camp? And she was like, great. And I want to be like, what about the rifles and the (laughs) walk-in freezer? But I don't say that because that would be crazy. That's why I'm telling you. I Uh, really
0: like that one. I like the implication that our own lies come back to haunt us. Oh, oh,
1: that's nice. I like that. I like that
0: our own lies come back in the unknown lives of our children. Yes. Yes. Because I' so lucky to be alive. You, that's how from the I feel things all the time. That I, did I feel like in high school, yeah. And ha- and it's not like I was a worse person than my children, or my children don't have the adventurous spirit of the teenage years that I. It, that's that's autonomic. Yeah, that's biological. There's no way they weren't doing things that were awful. Sure. Up, uh, but I'll tell you why I like the second one the most. Okay, is that it's about The exquisite self negation of love. <laughs> yes, yes. That's what I like about it. Yeah, yeah. Is that to be trampled to death by your daughter on a horse, you could honestly say <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing a great job, honey. Because you mean it like, oh, look at my sternum. Oh. They grow up so fast. Oh, that's nice. You're gonna do great. If you could kill me like that, <laughs> I'm not worried about you at all. Oh, I love that. That's what I like about it, is that it's about love. Yeah. And it's so true. It also feels so true. The third one feels true too, but there's a simplicity to that middle one I really like.
1: So so the final thing that we end on is working it out for a cause, and you choose... a. Uh, a a non-profit that I will Mm -hmm. donate to and link to in the show notes and encourage people to donate to as well oh great
0: it's called Somos Amigos and it is doctors that go down to the Dominican Republic to a very remote part of the DR which is like an hour away from the nearest paved road uh, right by just about 30 miles from the uh, the Haitian border and um, they they Bring healthcare and dental care to people who have never had it in their lives. Wow! And it's been around since the late '90s. And uh, Evie and I support it every year. We support also the ice cream, our ice cream fund. You know, uh, the Colbert, uh, the Stephen Colbert's Americone Dream. Some of the money goes there, and uh, it's just it's a wonderful organization. And um, they've they've had they haven't been able to go down because of COVID. So they're actually now using most of their funding to actually bring in Dominican doctors who uh, they've managed to locally build a facility there because it was literally just working in tents and for, for many for decades down there. Now they've got a small facility down there and I just love the it's extraordinarily selfless work that they do.
1: Well, I'm going to donate to them, and uh, and Stephen, I cannot thank you enough. It's such a great honor to have you on the show and talk about this stuff that that uh, is just literally a dream come true to talk to you about. Oh, Mike, it was a ton of fun, and I'm
0: a fan. And and not only am I a fan, but I, I, I really—you um, y- should know that everybody I ever talk to you about you just thinks the world of you. Oh, you have people have the burbigs is gets big ups from everybody oh, there's that's you're, so nice. you're you're fooling a lot of people
1: Mike <laughs> all at once <laughs> all at the same time Wow well I you have my vote for Senate in South Carolina sir it's done <laughs> working it out, cause it's not done we're working it out because there's no that's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out with Stephen Colbert. Uh, y- you know where to find him. He's, he's uh, Stephen at home in various social media places. He's on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Um, thank you for joining us. If you're enjoying the show, go on Apple Podcasts or one of the other uh, user review sites and throw us some stars a review. The producers of Working It Out are myself along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Bolinsky. sound engineer Alan Gus. associate producer Mabel Lewis. Thanks to my consigliere Mike Berkowitz as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. Special thanks as always to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music. They are on tour right now. As always, a special thanks to my wife, the poet J-Hope Stein. Our book, The New One, is at your local bookstore. It is uh, perfect timing for the holiday season. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who created a radio fort made of pillows. Thanks most of all to you who have listened. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. We're working it out. See you next time, everybody.